about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. But we are reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, and it is in the Pew Bibles, if you would prefer to read that, rather than the one in the sheet here. Excuse me. So. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Um, earlier this year, a friend of mine was honoured. He received an Order of Australia uh, medal at Australia Day. He's older than me, so, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it, he's still a friend. Um, and it was given in recognition of many decades of service to veterans' affairs. Um, it was a wonderful thing for him and a great reflection on our country and on what we value as a country, I reckon. Um, I was once honoured too. In year 12 at school, I received a soccer award for most valuable player, not in the first 11. <laughs> what? Oh, that has the wrong sermon slides. That's weird. That's going to be a problem. Can you get the slides from this morning, Fergus? I have no idea why. They're Jordan slides from last week. Wow, it's a comedy of errors tonight. Um, Fergus, you need to add an item, and it's the slides from this morning, if you can. Don't worry, they're not very good. Basically, they have the passage, uh, which is all you need. There we go. Now, what are we doing? Some of you might have been honoured recently, who knows? What are we doing when we honour people? Uh, well, one way to understand it is that we're, we're saying together, we're saying together what we value, Okay. When Australia Day honours are given out, we're saying as a society that we, we value the things that these people have done, right? We really think they're important and precious. We're saying that these things are valuable, they are precious to us, and they are worthy of our recognition and acknowledgement. That's what we're doing when we honour people. And this helps us see, I think, that the question of honour, even though we don't tend to use that word, it feels a bit old-fashioned, the word honoured, but the question of honour is more present in our lives than we might think. Because we are constantly, aren't we, making judgments of value or giving our opinions about what matters and what is worth our time and attention. Um, at a trivial but really common level, 
that's what we're doing on social media. When, when we like something or heart something, uh, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, look at this. This is, in some way, this is good and important. We're making a judgment of value, or in another sense, what we're doing is we are giving honour to something. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning because I think it can help us understand the message of the passage before us today. The passage before us today, which Ali just read, speaks about what God honours. It speaks about what is precious to God. Thank you so much for fixing the slides. What's precious to God? Um, Did you notice that word precious is used in verses 4, 6 and 7? But what it means there is, is not just that God is really fond of this thing, like an old special blanket might be precious to a child, um, but something much richer. The word used here for precious actually means, and it's, actually, it's often translated, honoured. This passage is about what God honours, what he values, not just sentimentally, but truly and deeply. That's why we also see in this passage other ideas about honour and shame. It talks about things being rejected and accepted. And did you notice it talks about not being put to shame? In the midst of all our opinions and judgments, our claims and counterclaims about what matters, what's worth our time, in the midst of all our misjudgments, the times we get it badly wrong and honour the wrong people and the wrong things, or, or we just miss the things that really matter and we value, our values are all out of whack. In the midst of all of that, we hear about we hear here about what God holds precious, what the Lord of heaven and earth sees as honourable, and it is really something. It says that the thing that God honours above all, that he holds utterly precious, is Jesus Christ. And because of this, the church, too, has a secret inner life that is valuable beyond imagining. Come with me as we look at those two things in turn. We're going to look at Jesus and we're going to look at the church. Um, The living stone and the living stones or the precious stone and the precious people. I couldn't decide, so both outlines ended up in here somewhere. One's on your sheet, one's on the screen. So first, the living stone. Okay, the passage begins in a way that is at first, a bit weird. Peter starts talking about Jesus as a living stone. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. What's going on there? Peter is talking about Jesus, but why does he call him a living stone? Well, the answer comes in verse 6. We see that Peter has in mind a number of verses from the Old Testament that use the image of a stone. Have a look at it. Verse 6 first. For in Scripture it says, Peter writes, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now that's a quotation from the greatest of Israel's prophets, the prophet Isaiah. It's from chapter 28 of Isaiah, if you care to look it up. Um, And in that context... It's an image of how God is going to act to bring salvation and justice to Israel. 
hundreds of years before Jesus and Peter's time, when the people of Israel were facing terrible disaster, Isaiah says that God is going to act to restore and renew and rebuild. He is going to lay a stone, a cornerstone that will be a new foundation for a new beginning. But this is not the only place the Old Testament speaks about stones. And Peter goes on in our passage to quote two more Old Testament texts that speak of how this stone will be unexpected. It will actually be a cause uh, for people to reject it and, and it will make people stumble. Have a look at verse 7. Peter says, Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, quote, here's the first quote, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and here's another quote, he says, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now the first quote here, that one, is from Psalm 118. And the second one is again from Isaiah, this time chapter 8. Those two different texts do two different things. The first one speaks about a stone that unexpectedly turns out to be the cornerstone. Now, let me just explain that image. In those days, building worked differently because you didn't have computers and laser measurements and stuff. And so when you're building a building, you had to pick a stone for the corner that had the best right angle you could get. And it was a bit rough and ready. And so builders would have to select stones and look at them and discard them. Uh, not that one. You know, not that one. And so the image here is of a stone that the builders have rejected. Ah, no, that'll never work. It becomes the cornerstone. It's unexpected. The second text pictures a stone, that's, that's this one. Basically, it's a stone that people trip over. Uh, in this church, we actually have one at the entrance, uh, in the doorway. So it's meant to help you remember this idea. So next time you fall over on the way in, just think, ah, stone that causes people to stumble. There we go. I wish it was deliberate, it's just the building, but anyway. But in its original context, this, this text is Isaiah speaking of how the Lord's presence will become a kind of fact that is, is, you just can't get around. A, a stone that will either make people stumble or that they will have to rely on utterly uh, as their foundation. Okay, so there's these images of a stone in the Old Testament that Peter calls up to speak of Jesus. Jesus, he says, Jesus is this stone uh, that the Old Testament scripture spoke of. Jesus is this utterly reliable foundation that also causes some to stumble. Okay, so far so good, but there are lots of images in the Old Testament, aren't there? So why stones? Why is this image of the stone so important? I mean, there are lots of things he could have talked about. Well, here is where it's good to realize that Peter is actually following Jesus. The gospel accounts, they all record that right at the climax of Jesus' ministry, they don't, actually, I think it's not in John, but it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right at the climax of Jesus' ministry, when he came to Jerusalem and confronted the leaders of his people, Jesus told a very challenging parable about how the leaders were ignoring God. And then he quoted the text that Peter quotes here. I want to show you it from Matthew's Gospel because I think it's worth seeing how Peter's drawing on Jesus. So this is from Matthew chapter 21. 
And this is right at, at, towards the end, before his arrest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. You see how Jesus is using these same ideas. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them, Matthew tells us. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Peter, in our passage, is following Jesus. Just think about the fact, right, he was there when Jesus said those things. He was, he was there. He heard Jesus quote those scriptures and apply them to himself. Peter saw the reaction of the Pharisees, and he saw where it led to. But then he saw what came after. He saw Jesus alive again, risen. And so Peter saw what this meant. He saw how the stone that had been rejected, Jesus, had, had, it really had become the new foundation, a living stone. And so Peter knew, and he wanted the people he was writing to, the communities he was writing to, he wanted them to know that this was all God's plan. This was what God had chosen. He'd seen it happen in Jesus. He'd seen it come true. God had chosen Jesus as the cornerstone, the living cornerstone, the foundation of a new glorious building. But he'd also chosen that this stone would make people stumble as well as stand. He saw it with the Pharisees. They stumbled on this stone because this stone was God's way of casting down the powers of sin and evil. And that's why Peter says those that don't believe stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. God has chosen Jesus, friends. God has chosen Jesus to be the place where his favor and honor rest, to be the foundation of his purposes and plans. It wasn't what we would have expected that a man whose career ended in humiliation and death, in intense shame, that's what crucifixion was, intensely shameful, that he would be the chosen one, the one who God would value above all else. But that was God's purpose, to tip the scales of the world, to upend our expectations and to humble us. People talk today about disruptors. What they mean is companies that radically alter the way an industry works. Well, God is the great disruptor here. That's what the image of, the, of Jesus as the stone is meant to do. It's meant to draw our attention to the fact that in the middle of everything, in the middle of all our assumptions, our smooth systems of va and values and judgments, in the middle of all that, God stuck a rock that got in the way. He said, this one, 
This one who was crucified, he is my son whom I love and I will build my kingdom on him and no one else. And everything and everyone now has to work around that. Has it really sunk in for you, friends? The infinite preciousness of Jesus to God. The, the honour that the Lord has given to Jesus of Nazareth. God calls us all, he calls the whole world to come and look at this, this man, this brilliant Jewish man, the son of Mary, who was brutally killed and hoisted up in shame and to see that this is the place. He is the one on whom God's favour and glory have come to rest. Nothing that cannot acknowledge him and fall at his feet will endure in the end. All of us, all of us will in the end either trust in and delight in this one or we will crash against him. What will he be to you? This living stone. A stumbling block? I hope not. What about the foundation, the cornerstone of your life? As you try to make him as precious as he is to God. God will not allow him to have another place in the end than one of those two. But that's only half of what Peter says here. What he also wants to say, and this is in a way even more incredible, is that this preciousness of Jesus gives the church too unimaginable dignity and value to God. Come back and look at how it continues in verse 5. So going back to the beginning of our passage... As you come to him, Peter says, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen faith. You are also like living stones being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Notice what Peter's doing here, right? He's finding images to describe how something is forming around Christ on his foundation. Christ's foundation means something is just growing and, and kind of accruing to it. A building is taking shape. But they're living stones because it's not actually a building, it's people. It is a community of faith, a formed network of life and work and relationships and activity produced by Jesus, the foundational cornerstone. The images flow together here in a pretty confusing way. Okay, like how can a house also be a priesthood? But what Peter is doing here again is he's drawing on a whole range of, of kind of threads from the Old Testament, a whole bunch of images and ideas, and he's, and he's knitting them together. He's taking names from the Old Testament that apply to Israel, and he's saying that they actually now apply to the church. We see even more of this in verses 9 and 10. This is the last two verses. Have a look again. But you, Peter says, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, again, to really understand what Peter is doing here, um, we need to see that these are ideas and images from the Old Testament. And what Peter's doing is he's taking them and he's giving them to Christian communities. Uh, let me just show you some of the passages that he's, he's drawing on. So the first one is from Exodus chapter 19. Israel, in this passage, stands before God at Mount Sinai and they meet him for the first time and they receive the Ten Commandments. And God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. That's where Peter's got that phrase. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You recognize what Peter's doing here? The second passage to know about is Isaiah 43. God speaks of my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. That is where Peter has got that phrase he uses in verse 9 about declaring God's praises. Finally, what Peter says in verse 10 is taken from another prophet, Hosea. Look at Hosea chapter 2. God says about Israel, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It's a beautiful passage. Now, I know it can be a bit confusing, maybe very confusing, jumping around to all these different bits of the Bible like this, um, especially if you're not very familiar with the Bible. Can I say, if, if you don't really know these passages and stuff and you don't know what's going on, that's okay, it's normal. It's a big book. But let me say two things about that. First, why not see this as an invitation to sink your teeth into the Bible and try to understand it better? The Bible is deeply interesting. It's deeply interesting. And what we see here in a passage like 1 Peter 2 is that there's often a lot going on. But it's not impossible to understand. Sometimes people think, oh, no way I could get the hang of that. Actually, you can. And why not see this as an opportunity, like a new city to explore that will feel very difficult to navigate at first, but that once you've got a map and a bit of practice, you'll get the hang of. Um, later in the year, we're hoping to do a a Bible overview course. Uh, that would be a good kind of basic map for getting started. Second, though, let me say that the main point I want to make this evening from all of this is actually super simple. Right? I just want us to see that what Peter is doing in this passage is he's taking the grandest descriptions given to Israel in the Old Testament, the names that were the most precious, the most treasured, sacred, and he's giving them to the church to Christians, to those who believed in Jesus. That's an incredible thing. Stop and feel the weight of it. We have no right to these names, those of us who are not Jewish. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God, they are names that Israel treasured and bled and died for. Can they really be ours? How? Because of Jesus. 
because of Jesus, not because actually they were about us all along. I mean, if you're going to have a chosen people, why not choose, you know, us, Newtown, people from... It's not like that. We have nothing in our credit or nothing about us that gives us a right to these names. The reason is that God has chosen him, the Lord Jesus, to be the cornerstone. Because before God chose Israel, before he chose Abraham, he chose the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ. He chose him to be precious and honoured. And so those who come to him, those who form around him, they are precious too. We've gotten used to criticising the church. On balance, I reckon this is probably more good than bad. Uh, because the church is human and it's full of problems. And it's better to criticise it than to worship it. But there is caution needed here as well. Because whatever criticisms we may have of stupid things that people have said and done or structures that are full of problems, let us not lose sight of the fact that the church has a hidden inner reality that is precious in God's sight and utterly central to his purposes. You, says Peter, to these groups of Christians, you are God's special possession. God loves the church. Not the institution as such, I don't think. I don't think these are things you can say about the Diocese of Sydney or the Anglican Church of Australia or the Baptist Union of Toowoomba or whatever. The institutions of the church, I think, are more like, they're, they're almost like the bark on a tree. The bark on a tree. They're visible, sometimes beautiful, sometimes dried out and fading. But they are there because underneath them is life. Invisible yet real, there is the spiritual reality that has been set in motion by what God has done in Christ, the cornerstone. And God really does love it. And he is permanently invested in it. A people called out of darkness and into the wonderful light of his Son. That reality is the hope of the world. And it, deser it deserves all the care and commitment that we can give it. I reckon Peter hoped that these words would be encouraging to the people he was writing to. Because the thing was, right, the thing they had become a part of, these Christians in Pontus and Bithynia and all the places he writes to at the beginning, the thing that they'd be become a part of was, on the face of it, not that great. It wasn't impressive, this new religion of faith in Jesus, right? The Jews had the Jerusalem temple, and it was magnificent, the Romans had their temples, splendid. And they all had their priests and rulers and special clothes, their sacrifices and majesty. What did the Christians have? No temples, no special clothes, no sacrifices, just a guy who'd been killed in the most shameful way possible. No, 
says Peter. Don't let that surface fool you. It's not like that at all. You are coming to a stone that is not dead like the stones of those temples, but alive. You are being built into a spiritual house, not one that will crumble and fall like those temples did in time. You are precious and honoured in God's sight. This is an encouragement that we need today in a different way, don't we? Because we live at a later time. In our time, it is Christian buildings that are crumbling. Our buildings as a church are literally crumbling. Every week, I have to clean sandstone dust off the couches in the creche areas. At Erskineville, if you were there for the meeting, the walls are falling, you know, plaster falls off. All through, through Europe and in much of Australia, churches are falling down and being turned into pubs with ironic titles like fellowship or sanctuary. <laughs> Gross. You know, or, or open plan units or galleries. And we hear that the church is a failing institution, an antiquated thing that has passed its use-by date and now is fading into irrelevance. And there are people who say, can't happen fast enough. But the word to us here today is, don't let that surface fool you. There is a hidden inner life of the church that is secured by the preciousness of Jesus to God. Christ is no less living now than he was then. And the true building is not these buildings, but the spiritual house that is being built, the inner vitality of Christ that still calls for your sacrifice and mine, for our work, our faith, our energy, our hope, because it is built of us, living stones. That's what you see around you. The church of God is no less vital, no less precious to him than it ever was. And that is why all around the world, churches are also being built. And why I believe that there is renewal taking place even here in this old building. Because God has laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Ever. So don't despair and don't give up. Put your hand to the wheel, brothers and sisters. Let's press on with our mission of declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light with great confidence and great joy. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.